Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Grab your Bibles and turn to um, John, the fourth chapter. We're going to be in John 4 this morning. While you're turning there, uh, early in the summer, back in June, my wife and I took a trip to Hawaii. We took our two granddaughters there, oldest granddaughters, on vacation with us. And flying back from Hawaii, we left in the afternoon, had a stop in L.A., a stop in Chicago, and then by the time we got back, it was about 1 o'clock on Thursday. It's about a six-hour time change between Hawaii and here. So I was pretty tired. I hadn't got a lot of sleep during the night. Got back to my office. My wife had a vertical adventure, a vertical women's thing that Thursday night, so I was going to be home alone, and I'm committed. Like, I'm going to stay up because I want to get this time zone thing figured out, get back on schedule. And my son Christopher said, hey, if you're looking for something to do, if you're tired and looking to stay awake, um, there's a golf tournament, kind of a worldwide golf tournament that um, our golf simulator has. We have a golf simulator in our office. It's, you hit into a screen if you don't do much golf. You hit into a screen, the simulator measures your speed, your angle, your spin on the ball, and you basically, it's golf kind of combined with video games. You can play virtual rounds and you never have to leave your office. I think this thing's awesome. Whatever. So we play this tournament with Christopher before he leaves work. And he's like, hey, I really think you could do well. So he leaves. I'm trying to stay awake. The house is empty. My wife is gone. And so I play another round. And I did really well. I made the kind of the leaderboard. And, and I'm pretty fired up about this. Christopher calls me and he says, hey, Dad, what are you doing? I said, well, I played another round after you left. I made the leaderboard. He goes, did you play bare-chested? And I'm like, well, yeah, I was really sunburned, and we played earlier. I, had my, I was peeling and everything, and I was... So I took my shirt off because it was itchy. And then it hit me. <laughs> the way the golf tournament works with these simulators is the cameras that measure the way you hit the ball if you make the leaderboard post video of every shot to prove that it's you <laughs> online. So I'm thinking if you Google David was sent, like, <laughs> there's some things you can't unsee. Like, I, I'm very, very worried about this whole thing. So that moment of, oh, you've got to be kidding me, when I realized what I had done, there's a similar moment in our text in John 4. There's an encounter with Jesus. We're in a series called The King is in the Room, and, King, and Jesus is in Samaria. He's going to have an encounter with a woman at the well, and in two sentences, Jesus is going to embarrass her. He's going to lay her story, her life bare. And, and as we study this story, it'll be familiar for some of you. I, I, I want to do more than just tell, look at what the story tells us Jesus did. I want to look at why he does what he does. The, the goal of this whole series, The King is in the Room, is for us to better appreciate our Savior and, and, and if you know Jesus as Savior, if you're already a follower of Jesus, to appreciate better the good news of the gospel. But if you've wandered in here this morning, you're visiting somebody, you're in town because of Coast Guard or whatever, my, my prayer would be that this morning you've had an encounter with Jesus and maybe see him differently than you ever have before. So let's jump into the text, John 4. Pick it up in verse 1. It says this, Now when the Jesus learned that the Pharisees, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. So, 
John the Baptist had created quite a disruption with his baptizing in the wilderness. Now Jesus is on the scene. He's creating a greater disruption for the Jewish religious system in Jerusalem than John the Baptist ever did. Jesus has gone in in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He's cleansed the temple. He's met with Nicodemus. And Jesus is now leaving because it's not safe for him to be in Jerusalem. We would read in John 7, it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He couldn't go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And throughout the book of John, you continue to see Jesus say, well, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Jesus' earthly ministry, he wasn't just muddying around doing things and healing people. There was divine appointment after divine appointment after divine appointment. And then what we read in verse 4 is it says this, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Okay, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. That's a little misleading the way we read it in our text. When it says he had to pass through Samaria, I believe this is like what we read in Matthew 4, that after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. The common route was not to go through Samaria if you were going from Jerusalem or Judea back up to Galilee. What, what a Jewish person would do is he would go from Jerusalem downhill to Jericho along the Jordan River. He would cross the Jordan River and then go north up back into Galilee. All of that to avoid going through Samaria because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. This was the common route. It was the safe route. It was the route most often traveled. But in this case, he had to go to Samaria. Why did he have to go? Was he in a hurry? Was he taking a shortcut? No, at the end of Matthew 4 or end of John 4, he stays an extra two days. He was in no hurry to get to Galilee. He goes through Samaria rather than around Samaria because he's following the leading of the Spirit. The Spirit is telling him, you need to go through Samaria. I've got a divine appointment for you. Do you think that sometimes we still have divine appointments from God? Circumstances, interactions, people that we run into or bump into us, and you go, man, it just feels like the Spirit of the Lord was in that thing. It's interesting. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, speaking of Christ's second return, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, so I believe in this season, some will look around and say, man, culture is going south and things are so bad and why does the Lord tarry and please come, Lord Jesus. I think he's got some work that he still wants to accomplish in this season, don't you? Some divine appointments for all of us that we need to have an awareness of, to, to be looking for. So Jesus is in Samaria. The Spirit has led him there. Look at verse 5. It says, so he came down, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. So a couple things. If you're going to try to keep notes uh, this morning, good luck. Um, but here would be the first point on the idea, are you ready for the gospel? Here's the first question. Are you weary? And, and, and I want to talk to you a little bit about weariness, being tired, being exhausted. Anybody here? Weary this morning? Anybody in Grand Haven like pretty late last night? Fighting crowds and traffic and watching fireworks? I think there's something about August in West Michigan 
where a lot of us are tired and exhausted. Can we agree? Like, like if you get to August in West Michigan and you're not tired, you're just not even doing summer right. Like, like, like we're just tired come this time of year. And it's not bad to be tired. It, there's different types of tired. What, what's made you tired? What has exhausted you? Jesus, it's interesting, he sits down, he's attending this divine appointment, he's going where the spirit has led, but as he gets to the well at noon in the middle of Samaria, he's tired. Why is he tired? Because he's doing what God has called him to do. Sometimes, as followers of Jesus Christ, we do our best work when we're exhausted. Two weeks ago, just two weeks ago today, um, we had in our church a seven-year-old, Sonder, pass away. And uh, we did the funeral last weekend. Um, that's been an ordeal for uh, the Meyer family, for Reed and Marissa, her parents. Please remember them in your prayers. But over that season, that week of planning the services, and even before that, coming alongside of them and caring for their daughter, um, their small group, I just got to observe it. It was remarkable. And there, there were women in that small group like Marie and Jessica and Helen. Man, man, they just loved on that family. And it's like, we'll take care of everything for the funeral. We'll take care of the food. We'll do everything. And I, and I asked them at the funeral, I said, how are you guys doing? And they said, we're exhausted and we're loving it. Hands and feet of Jesus. Exhausting themselves in ministry. There's a really good tired. So as the notes ask, are you weary the second question would be, what has caused you to be tired? What has caused you to be weary? Jesus is weary because of ministry. You, you guys saw the video recap. I was watching it in the back and then the baptisms. The, the response from camp this year has been unbelievable. People saying, man, you just feel the spirit move. Man, there was a lot of kids that gave their life to the Lord, made some really, really big decisions. You're seeing some of the fruit of that even today. His, his sisters came forward and got baptized. That's a wonderful thing. Why did that happen? I believe the spirit moved to camp. It's because he moved there. But often the spirit moves through the working of exhausted people. Talk to Jordan, talk to Kara, talk to our uh, young people that, that work in ministry with the high schoolers that were there at camp. Talk to the volunteers that were there at camp. Man, man, they're exhausted. One of the guys, and I don't mean to highlight him over others, but Emmanuel Aziz, he's, he's in the back, he's doing production right now. He's one of our production guys. He, he's there days before the kids show up at camp. He's got to set up, he brings the whole sound system sets up camp, makes sure that everything's right. Then he's there, he runs sound. He's there working with the kids, ministering to them, loving on them, running all the production in the background. He gets a call Tuesday at camp. Hey, we're gonna need your help. We've got the funeral on Saturday. He's like, that's great, but you gotta understand I'm also doing praise by the pier. I've gotta be down there Saturday afternoon meeting with those people early Sunday afternoon, setting everything up, going through rehearsals, making sure everything works well. And those of you that were at praise at the pier, you're like, man, that was a great concert. And you leave, he's tearing down. Oh, by the way, he wasn't feeling well. His wife was sick. His kid was sick. And, and please hear me. We're not going emo. You have to be there. You couldn't keep him away if you wanted to. Let me give you just a little clip. This is Tuesday night, last night at camp. This is emo running production. Take a look.
<laughs> That's our production guy at camp. Listen, we will never know what it means to be fully used by God unless we're willing to work sometimes when we're exhausted. There's a whole new movement across the evangelical system about balance and self-health and making sure that you're emotionally healthy and all of those things are important. You'll see Jesus pull away to get alone with the Lord and pray and I'm not trying to negate that. All I'm saying is there are seasons when ministry will sometimes exhaust you and that's a good thing. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. See, see that's the option. What, what, what are you going to allow to exhaust you, to make you tired. It says in verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Okay, it's noon. Why noon? Well, well the disciples are gone. They're alone. Jesus is weary. He's been traveling from Judea to Galilee. But the woman is there at noon. Why, why is the woman there? That seems like an odd time to draw water. Jesus says, give me a drink. The woman responds in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a really generic vanilla summation about the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. It goes back 700 years. 700 years before this encounter, Assyria had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and had taken the northern kingdom captive into slavery in Assyria. And while the, the, the Jewish people were in slavery in Assyria, many of them uh, married Assyrian husbands or, or Assyrian wives. Jews hated them for that for hundreds and hundreds of years. It would be the equivalent of a Ukrainian woman marrying a Russian soldier that would have some repercussions with today's circumstances and events. The woman was surprised, not only that Jesus would talk to her, him being a Jew, her being Samaritan, but Jesus was jumping across gender, racial, and cultural divides. The, the Samaritans were hated so bad by the Jews that the Jewish rabbis would say, Lord, when you return to rescue us, don't rescue the Samaritans. Leave them there. Lord, we want you to take us to heaven, but it won't be heaven if you bring them, in essence. Deep hatred. She's shocked that Jesus would even engage in a conversation. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. 
And the woman answered him, he says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I want to take a moment and just break down this interaction. One of the things that jumps out to you, the thing that we really can't miss is as they begin to talk, as they begin to banter back and forth, the woman knows nothing about who she's talking to and Jesus knows everything about this woman. The woman is offered living water. That's a play on words. If you're out on a hot day at noon in Samaria, which is um, a desert re region, you come to a well. Um, that water, depending on the season, how much rain they've got, uh, 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 it can kind of get a little stagnant, a little janky down in a well. And when Jesus comes and says, I want to give you living water, that could also be interpreted flowing water, like a stream. So Jesus is offering something in contrast to her source of water that is better. He says, if you would have known who I was, you would have asked me. I would have given you living water. The woman's not about to be spoken down by some Jewish guy that she doesn't even know. Listen to her response. She immediately goes, she goes, hey, you know this well? Uh, our father Jacob. Don't play your nationalistic superiority on me. Same father we all look back to the same patriarchs. We all come back from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's my lineage. That's your lineage. I don't think she was any mood to be spoken down to by this Jewish guy. And then she starts to point out some of the practical problems with Jesus' offer. Oh, you want to give me water? Can I point some things out to you? Uh, you don't have a bucket. The well is deep. Flowing water Hey, look around. Not seeing a lot of rivers running through this area. She's got some spice to her in her response to Jesus. I wonder if she's heard men promise and not deliver before. Just wonder. As she sits there and hears this stranger make promises, I wonder if she's been disappointed before. I wonder if she'd heard men brag. Doesn't want to be disappointed again. I'm starting to think that Jesus might not be the only weary person at this well. It's interesting, the text goes on and gives us no explanation regarding her past five marriages. We don't know what happened in those previous marriages. We don't know why she'd been married five times. Maybe... I don't know, maybe she was the prettiest girl in her village. And all the men would flirt with her. All the men were trying to win over her affections. And she just loved the attention. Maybe she lacked self-esteem. Maybe anybody that would show her affection, she just kind of gravitated to. I don't know. Maybe she had five great marriages and they all just died. And the six guys like, uh... Seeing a pattern here, maybe we just want to date a little while. Like, 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 we don't get the detail in the text to let us determine what was going on. Maybe she believed in the fairy tale of finding Prince Charming, the guy that would satisfy all of her needs. Reading between the lines, here's some things that we can determine. 
She's probably gone through some disappointments, right? Like, like what was it like when the first husband left? Did he say goodbye? Did he, did he just leave? Was she heartbroken or relieved when that guy took off? Or the next? Or the next? But we can determine, reading between the lines, that her life hasn't been easy. There's been some sorrows. There's been some disappointments. Maybe she's a little jaded. She's looking at this stranger at the well and saying, why would he be any different? Big idea this morning is simply this. Jesus meets with tired people. Jesus meets with tired people. He has promised her living water so that she'll never be thirsty again. Listen to her response in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, now here's what I know. I've, I've been in some third world countries. I've been in Liberia on the west side of Africa. I've been in Kenya. I've been in villages where part of the daily grind or routine is you have to go to a water source, a well or a stream to get water. There's no running water in the homes. And by the way, it's a ton of work and it seems like a huge pain, right? But for them, that's all they know. It's just what everybody does. I don't think the problem here was she was tired of drawing water. She wouldn't have known anything different. That's what everybody does. Now, if you go to me, I live in downtown Grand Haven. If you tell me, hey, the water's off for the rest of the month, you got to go down to the river and draw water. Oh, I got issues. Because that would be really laborious for me because it would be something different than I'd always done. But for her, that was the task that she had always done. It's all that she knew. I don't think the emphasis here is on the drawing water. Listen to what she says. She says it this way. She goes, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I think the issue was here to draw water. Why is she there at noon? All the other women come at the beginning of the day in the cool of the day. Why is she there at noon? Well, because the village is talking. She's been married five times. She's living with a man who isn't her husband. So she comes to avoid the stares, the rejection. But every day when she comes at noon, she's faced with the regrets, and the sorrow over her past. She is face to face with the choices that she's made, the disappointments that she's experienced, and she can't run away from it. The issue is here. Like, I don't want to come here anymore. I don't think the woman's stupid. Jesus is turning the conversation from physical water and using it to illustrate a, a spiritual truth. I don't think she missed that. He starts to talk about water that turns to eternal life, water that will spring up inside of you. She's tracking with what he's doing. He's turning the conversations to bigger things. Are you satisfied? Are, are, are you happy? Have you found what you're looking for? And so again, I, I would just ask you this morning, are, are you tired? Are, are you weary? Are you satisfied? Life over time will tend to teach us that relationships, success, job titles, possessions, they don't always satisfy. A couple of weeks ago, Cal was preaching right here, 
And uh, he talked about the when syndrome. How many people live and say, well, when I graduate high school, when I graduate college, when I get into my career, when I get that promotion, when I have kids, when I find Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful, when the kids leave, when I get to retire, there's always something on the horizon that when that happens, then I'll be happy. And the sad thing that Cal pointed out was that when we live our lives that way, we're always anticipating satisfaction that we never experience. Thirsty people come in all sizes. Someone was talking with me this week and they said, man, as a pastor, do you ever get tired of just dealing with struggling people and all their problems all the time? I'm like, not really, because that's not my day-to-day. There, yeah, there's some of that, but quite honestly, I spend a lot of my day-to-day dealing with successful people who are wildly unsatisfied. Are you tired? Are you thirsty? In Isaiah 55, the prophet writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then the second verse, Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which will not satisfy? Jesus is talking to a woman at a well. It's a divine encounter. And he says, listen, I have something that I can give you that not only will satisfy you completely, it'll satisfy you permanently. Here's the second point. Are you ready to be known and to be loved? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now in the progression of the conversation, can we just admit that just took a really awkward turn? Hey, why don't you get your husband? Like, where did that awkward turn come from? And oh, by the way, bring him here. The place that she hates. Bring the problem to the place that is the problem. She says, I have no husband. He says, you speak rightly. You have no husband. You've had five. And the one that you're with now is not your husband. Okay. I just got to ask a question. As we're looking at Jesus, as we're trying to understand him better, why in the world would he ask the question if he already knew the answer? Was his intent just to embarrass her, to humiliate her, to drag the garbage of her past right into the conversation? Why did Jesus take this turn? Not what did he do, just but why did he do it? And I would argue, as you see this conversation progress, It was very important to Jesus that she knew that he knew. That there was nothing hidden. He didn't bring it out to embarrass her. Even as she answers, watch her deflect. She says, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you're right. She she goes into defense mode right away. But even as he pulls out the reality of her situation, he's not embarrassing it. It's not a condemning conversation that Jesus has. He just wants her to know that he knows. And oh, by the way, he's still there. He hasn't gone anywhere. There's still eye contact. He's not looking away. He's not shaking his head in disgust. He knew all about her before the conversation started, and he's still engaged. To be fully known and fully loved is a very powerful thing. 
we were honest with ourselves, I think that we would find that many of us struggle to receive love from other people. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because we have become very, very good in our culture of having a duplicitous personality. We're one thing in social media, and it's very different than what we really are. We, we present ourselves. We wear a mask. We put on a facade. There's things that we hide about ourselves when we go out with other people. And if those people like us, there's always something in our core that is saying, yeah, they like us, but if they really knew what we were like, if they knew all about me, if my small group knew how I treated my wife and kids when I was home and they aren't there, if my wife knew the searches that I'm making on the internet, if my kids knew that I was behaving this way when I'm not in the home, when I'm in work, if people understood how I struggle with lust, if people knew how gripped I am by anxiety, if people knew the pieces that I don't let people see, if they knew everything about me, they wouldn't love me. And what happens in those moments is we really struggle to believe that someone could really love us if they completely knew us. And, and, and listen, I don't know your past, I don't know your present, I don't know the things that you are keeping under wraps so that no one else can know. But here's what I know, if only 1% of you is hidden, if 99% of you is transparent, it's fully known, but you're keeping 1% hidden, you are going to struggle to believe that people could actually love you if they completely knew you. And Jesus in two sentences says, I know everything about you. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here. As a matter of fact, bring your husband here. Let's deal with it now. Sadly, so many of us in trying to carry the facade don't even bring the areas that Jesus most wants to heal in our lives. And we forget the point of the gospel. In Mark, Jesus is talking with Sinners and prostitutes. The Pharisees are like, what's he doing hanging out with them? And he says these wonderful words. He goes, listen, a physician doesn't heal the healthy. I came to heal the sick. Not the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Can't hide from an all-knowing God. But I think sometimes because we carry guilt and shame, it's hard for us to believe that a holy, all-knowing God actually loves us as completely as he does and it's on full display in this divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. Here's a third thing. See it as we advance in the text. Are you out of objections? Look at verse, uh, the first thing that I would point out. Look at um, her interaction so far. She's been pretty cynical, would you agree? We often respond when Jesus is trying to get our attention with cynicism. I really don't think you can give us the satisfaction that you claim that you can. You know what? I, I, I've, I'm just not believing it. She first responds with cynicism. Here's the second objection she raises. Religious non-essentials. Verse 20. He, he, he's just said, hey, bring your husband. I know all, everything about you. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Then she says this, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay, I've been confronted. I've been exposed. Let's change the subject. Where are we supposed to worship? 
Now, now some scholars, some commentators give her credit. They're like, in response to Jesus and what he had just exposed, she wants to make sure that she goes to the right place to give an offering to make things right. I don't think that's the case. I think she's deflecting. In the moment, she's been exposed. So rather than deal with her thing, what she does is she starts to ask questions. Why are you guys a non-denominational church? Couldn't we sing more hymns? Why all the contemporary worship? Does God choose us or do we choose him? If God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil in the world? Can God make a rock that's so big that even he can't lift it? Like, like, I have been in too many rooms with too many people confronted with a decision that they need to make about their lives and following Jesus, and I get pulled into theological debates. I think that's what she's doing. Rather than deal with my stuff, let's, let, let's argue religion for a bit. Look at how Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. By the way, he just answered her with truth. It's not that truth isn't important. And please hear me. Jesus isn't scared of our questions. Theology matters. But in this moment, he's dealing with a woman trying to get her attention. Look what he says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I'm going to leave so much meat on the bone in those verses, it's unbelievable. We're going to go back to that at some point. But here's what I want you to see in that passage right now. She asks the question, where do we worship? And he says... I don't care where you worship, I need worshipers. Let's not talk where, let's talk you. What are you worshiping? And please, when I say worship, don't think singing. When I say worship, think who's on the throne? Who's calling the shots? What's your primary passion? What's your primary pursuit? As people, man, we get distracted. We worship a lot of different things. My wife was out of town for a, a night this week. She was preparing for a treat at our place up north, so I'm in Grand Haven by myself. Seven o'clock, I'm hungry. I haven't, had, I haven't had breakfast. I had just one of those stupid smoothies for lunch. I'm hungry. I go to the grocery store. Okay? I, no human can eat $52 of food in one sitting, but I was hungry. <laughs> I was worshiping food in that moment. Like, like that was the thing that... Everything looked good. <laughs> who eats a whole rotisserie chicken with vinegar potato chips? Like, who does that? <laughs> we get distracted and all of a sudden other things become priority if we're not careful. And Jesus says, don't make it about where, make it about who. One more thing, she delays. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes... He will tell us all things. Jesus says in verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. When confronted with the reality of her need and her lack of satisfaction in the way that her life is going, she says, well, when Messiah comes, I'll deal with it. I don't want to deal with it right now. She just goes into delay mode. It's interesting. 
four or five years ago, I think it was maybe more than that, maybe two, uh, 2016, we did a sermon series here as a church, the seven I am statements from the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. Seven statements that Jesus makes where it's an I am declaration. This one's not included. It's never included when you look at the seven I am statements of John. But I would argue that this is the most important one. It's the first in the book of John. In John 4, he says, not to Nicodemus in John 3, not to the Pharisee, not to the religious elite. He takes a woman with a sordid past and he says, I am Messiah. None of the other seven I am statements later in the book of John make any difference if you don't see Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in this moment where she tries to delay and says, I'll deal with my stuff when Messiah comes, he cuts off the delay and he says, I'm Messiah. Now's the moment. We're going to deal with this here. And this problem that you have with here, that's what I'm here to fix. She delays. You know, it's interesting as you look at the rest of the chapter, you ask yourself the question, did she get it? John says that he wrote his book. He assembled the stories in the gospel that he wrote. He said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just three things as we close. Has the gospel changed you? I want you to see how she responds to her divine appointment with her encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Now, I, maybe that's just an insignificant detail that snuck into the narrative, but I don't think so. See, Jesus has played an analogy saying, you want water, I give living water. You're not satisfied, I want to give complete satisfaction. And her response to that story, John notes this small detail. When she left the well, she left her water jug, her bucket. No other pursuits mattered. She wasn't looking for satisfaction. She wasn't looking for living water. She wasn't looking for purpose and meaning in her life anywhere else but in the Messiah that she had just met. Have you left your other pursuits behind? Here's the second thing, also verse 28. She left her water jar and went away into town and she said to the people, come see a man who's told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The woman was just at the well at noon to avoid the very people that she's talking to. And the reason she was there at noon because she was ashamed of her past, but now she's referencing her past and saying, this guy's changed everything. What happened to her shame? One of the ways that I know that the gospel has grab, grabbed somebody's heart is the mistakes and the sorrows and the disappointments and the things of their past no longer are viewed with shame. They view them through the eyes of the gospel. Look at what Jesus has done in spite of my past, through my past. Her shame is removed. And then finally, obvious, verse 30. They went out of town and were coming to him. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. She gave witness. She wasn't afraid to tell anybody what Jesus had done for her. Do me a favor, just bow your heads in this moment. 
I've been looking forward to preaching this message for weeks. Maybe my favorite chapter in the whole New Testament for sure in the book of John. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, my prayer has been very simply for you. I pray that you're encouraged and you're reminded of the incredible love that Jesus has, not because of us, but in spite of us. And if you don't know Jesus the Savior, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you find yourself this morning weary, tired, and exhausted in your life, hey, the king's in the room. The moment is now. Don't delay. There's a Savior who loves you, knows everything about you, and this moment could be your divine appointment. Don't walk away from here unchanged. Don't walk away from here not understanding what Jesus says when he says, I can give living water. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you that you love us enough to pursue us, to engage with us. Father, I know there's many in this room that are tired, they're, they're weary, they're exhausted. Father, when we're tired, let that be for the right reasons because we're pressing forward in serving you. Father, for those who are tired because, um, well, life's just been tiring. Father, I pray that they would find a rest, a resource, and a joy in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.